Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, 
Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thank you, Deb. And uh, good evening, everyone. Pete, I feel a bit loud. Uh, Can I just say also, uh, add to, to Vic's thank you, my thank you for everyone for making alternative arrangements to be here. It really is a reflection on your love for the Lord, but also one another, that you're prepared to give that a go. And um, I really am looking forward to hearing a, a few of you at least share for a minute or so stuff you've been learning and thinking about from John's Gospel, whether that's from Sundays, in growth groups, or personal devotions. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll get straight underway, hey? Uh, Lord, just capture our imagination for these few short minutes that we might love you more and serve you with all our hearts. Amen. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Was it a police officer who kept people safe? A doctor, maybe, who saved lives? A firefighter who rushed into burning buildings to rescue people? A reporter, maybe, who who brought the news into people's living rooms? A sporting sensation, made a living playing the game you loved? Was it a vet who cared for animals or a performer who brought joy into people's lives. This week I read of a guy who always dreamed of being a garbage collector. He just loved the thought of hanging off the back of one of those big garbage trucks with the wind in his face. He thought that was like being a modern-day cowboy. And as a child, he remembered sitting at his living room window with his toy garbage truck in hand, giddy with anticipation at the sight of this majestic metallic thing burling around the corner and he'd wave and the garbage collectors would wave back and his dream was to one day be like them now it really would stink wouldn't it (laughs) but nothing a shower couldn't fix when you were a kid what did you want to be i wanted to be an undertaker said no kid ever i wanted to embalm dead bodies for burial. I wanted to dress corpses ready for their coffins. I wanted to conduct funeral services. I wanted to sit with people who'd lost their most beloved ones as they weepingly tell me about the last few minutes they spent with them before they stopped breathing. Said no kid ever. And yet I find myself doing that regularly, if not frequently, at least a bit about conducting funeral services and sitting with people at the very end. And it's confronting and it's scarring and it's depleting as you'd expect it to be. And it would be, I think, near impossible for me if it were not for these words from the lips of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Those words uh, form a real central part of the funeral service. But really, I think they're, they're words that we ought to burn into our brains as Christian people. They're words that ought to be in our spiritual toolkit if we are going to navigate this life at all well. And so we're going to be thinking about what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life today as we consider 
the story of Lazarus that Deb read beautifully for us from John chapter 11, which I hope you have open in front of you. Over the past five weeks, we've heard Jesus claim to be the light of the world twice, to be the eternal God predating Abraham, and to be the good shepherd. Today, what does it mean for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life? Well, the first thing it means, the first thing the story of Lazarus in John 11 means is that death is not the end. His resurrection means that death is not the end. The the well-known, cynical British philosopher and Nobel Prize winner Bertrand Russell, he's kind of like an anti-C.S. Lewis, I think. He said these words, There is darkness without, and when I die there will be darkness within. There's no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. You try telling that to Lazarus. His resurrection means that death is not the end. Well, as we pick up the story in John 11, we're introduced to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha for the first time in John's gospel. It's, uh, as Vic said, clear that they're well-known and well-loved by Jesus. The sisters say that of Lazarus in verse 3. John the writer says it of all three of them in verse 5, but this family has a serious problem because Lazarus is sick. And it must be serious because they've sent word to Jesus who is some quite some distance away. But then a curious thing happens... Because Jesus does nothing. I mean, John is at pains to impress upon us both that Jesus loved this family and yet he did not move in response to their very very serious request. How curious. In fact, it says he stays where he is for a further two days. Perhaps it's not that serious, think the disciples. After all, Jesus said it won't end in death. So, you know, no rush, maybe. That's what they're thinking. Perhaps Jesus doesn't want to go down to Bethany, back down there, back uh, to just a couple of miles from Jerusalem, because the last time he was there, the Jews there had tried to kill him. Okay, you think, fair enough. Except by verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples they are going to head to Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethany are located. And they're going to go there because Lazarus has died. He is dead. And despite Jesus' reassurances in verse 9 that there are 12 hours of daylight and anyone who walks in the daytime won't stumble. In other words, don't overestimate the dangers, fellas. The, the disciple Thomas responds in his truly sardonic style in verse 16. Okay, let's go to Lazarus. We'll probably die right alongside him. You've got to love Thomas. And so the scene is set for the return of Jesus into Judea, into Bethany. And, and you'll see there in verse 17, by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been entombed for four days. There was a Jewish belief, kind of hard to work out how widespread it was, that for three days following death, the soul kind of hovered around the corpse, seeking the possibility of re-entry. But by the morning of the fourth day, as decomposition really sets in, there is a shift. There is an acceptance that the person is gone. Lazarus is dead. We've been told that plainly in two ways now. And so you think just like Jesus deliberately made mud on the Sabbath to heal the blind man in chapter 9 to provoke the Pharisees. Now he deliberately delays his visitation to the family that he loved very much with withholding the soothing he could offer because he wants to confront this enemy of death once it has assumed its full authority, once Lazarus is definitively dead. He's been in the tomb four days. 
But Jesus wants us to know that death is not the end. Lazarus, he says to Martha, Lazarus, your brother will rise again, verse 23. And, and Martha at least believes in kind of a general resurrection of the dead, which was spoken of, I think, in fairly vague terms uh, in the Old Testament in places like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake at the very end of time, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But Jesus is inviting her to believe beyond that sort of general vague expectation. I'd love you to read verse 25 with me in the Bibles that you have in front of you there. Key verse for tonight. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I'm not just talking about some end time resurrection, says Jesus. I'm saying that death is not the end in the most powerful sense, nor in the present tense. You think Jesus has already given life to a boy who is dying in this gospel. He's given limbs to a long-term paralytic man. He's given sight to a man born blind. He has repeatedly offered eternal life. And as the good shepherd we heard last week, he promises life to the full. In John 11, Jesus is saying that death is not the end. There might be physical dissolution of the body, decomposition, but that does not constitute the death of hope. It doesn't mean that all you can cling on to is the reduction of existence to some sort of shadowy beyond i am the resurrection and the life he says the very second after you stop breathing you will live on if you believe in me and you will never die again but at the resurrection at the end of the age will rise to a glorious recomposed physical splendid and vast eternity the very opposite of what bertrand russell described and in the meantime You can have the sort of life that Jesus has been hitting at all gospel long. Restorative life. Saving life. Eternal life that begins when you first trust in Jesus. And which never ebbs away. But which will explode into a glorious forever. Resurrection means that death is not the end. And so he says to Martha, you on board with that? Not just that there will be a, you know, a general resurrection, but that Jesus will be the locus and the focus of it. And she responds affirmatively, I do believe that you are the Messiah, which is not a direct answer to his question, but you, you gather she's got positive expectations of him. I think her initial statement in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The very same statement that her sister Mary will make in verse 32 is not a criticism of his delay, Not even a forlorn hope. It's more a show of faith. And how far that is going to take her remains to be seen. As Martha fetches her sister Mary. Well Mary you sense she has greater spiritual intuition than her sister. A deeper spiritual connection with Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping along with her friends he was moved. When he saw where the tomb where Lazarus lay, it says, verse 35, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, and yet still rich and full of meaning. I mean, he knew what he was about to do. We knew as early as verse 4, and yet he weeps. Not removed 
He's not remote from our suffering, but he enters into it. This shortest verse in all the Bible reminds us that he is with us in our agony. And his tears are quite different to some of the mourners, some of whom would have been professional mourners, people hired, paid to cry on occasions of significant loss. Friends, I want to say there's even more. You know, it says there in verse 33, he was deeply moved. I want you to have a look at that in your Bible. Verse 33, he was deeply moved. Again, in verse 38, he was deeply moved. We naturally think that's just another way of describing his grief that caused him to weep. But actually, it's quite different. That, that, that word for deeply moved, outside the Bible, it's a word that refers to the snorting of horses, and the brash indignation Maybe as they're about to rear up on their hind legs. When applied to humans, it always refers to anger, not grief. All the reliable commentators agree. The great Canadian Don Carson says, it is, and you know, if he's getting fired up, he must mean it, right? It's grammatically impossible, he says, to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, and the like. Jesus was outraged in his spirit. He approached the tomb not with inexpressible grief, but barely contained rage at the violent tyranny of death itself, of how it by definition robs us of life in direct opposition to his mission of bringing life. And so he walks towards the lifeless Lazarus like a gladiator, not like a pastor or a counselor or a comforter. And he's going to pick a fight with death. I remember um, visiting a friend from our congregation who died last year. He was about my age. It was about this time last year. I remember visiting him in palliative care. He was quite literally on his deathbed. Trying to have a conversation with somebody whose vocal cords had been shredded by cancer. And I saw fear in his brown eyes that was swollen with tears. And I asked him if he was afraid. And, of course, he responded with the barest of nods. And I said, look, that is understandable. And I, I guess I mumbled something about um, still being able to trust in Jesus. And then I looked away because my tears were swollen. My eyes were swollen with tears as well, and I didn't think that would serve him at that point. Jesus wept. Of course he did. He's with us in our agony. But I can weep, and so can you. And I can sit with people in their pain, and I reckon you can do it better than me. So actually, friends, we need more from Jesus than his tears. We need him to be deeply moved, outraged, to walk towards the grave like a gladiator with the brash swagger of a brawler who knows he's going to win the fight. And face death head on. And the one who stands behind death, Satan himself, head on and prevail. He was outraged in spirit, like the snorting of horses at the tyranny of death, perhaps as we should be as well, but certainly as we need him to be, if we're ever to believe that he is the resurrection and the life, and have hope that is more than just the future expectation of some shadowy and murky afterlife take away the stone i don't care about the smell this will not end in death 
your brother Lazarus will rise. And because our beloved brawler is also our good shepherd, when he called out to Lazarus, Lazarus heard his voice and came out. Verse 44, still wrapped in his grave clothes. Resurrection means that death is not the end. Secondly, and uh, very quickly tonight, it's uh, very important, I think, that we all see that resurrection comes uh, only through belief in Jesus. Uh, I think that would have been plain to you as Deborah read the passage to us. Not all will rise again to life. It's not a universal promise made to all humanity. Resurrection comes through belief in Jesus. Track this with me in your Bibles. You see it first in verse 14. Lazarus is dead, says Jesus to his disciples. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. He says it again in verse 25. We've seen that already. And again in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And then finally there in verse 42. I know that you always hear me. He's praying to the Father. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You see, resurrection comes through belief in Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe is the probing question that Jesus asks Martha. And she showed such promising signs, even in her deep grief. But when it came for the stone to be rolled away, she wasn't quite sure. Now that's okay because she hadn't seen it yet. But you and I have. So friends, if you've not already done so, I really do implore you to entrust your life and your future to him. Resurrection comes only through belief in Jesus. And then thirdly uh, today, resurrection is ultimately for the glory of God. It's for God's glory. Uh, And remember Jesus' first words to his disciples uh, when uh, we heard the news about Lazarus in verse 4. This sickness will not end in death. My goodness, it won't, but what a journey. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son might be glorified through it. Or down the other end of the passage, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus said that God would be glorified, and he is. But I guess it would be remiss not to mention that the resurrection of Lazarus, God glorifying as it is, is not the full and complete vision of resurrection that we're meant to hold on to. I mean, it was, it was more than a resuscitation, because he was in the tomb for four days. But it's... Um, Not the full view of resurrection. It's something less than full resurrection because Lazarus would have died again. Presumably in his old age in the fullness of time. So I take it that God's son is ultimately glorified through Lazarus' resurrection because it points forward to his own resurrection from the dead, from the grave, after he was crucified to pay the penalties our sins deserve because he is the lover of our souls. I take it that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he, he doesn't mean that he would rise again, but, but only to die again like Lazarus died. Surely the resurrection of Lazarus points away from Lazarus to the son who was raised from death by the father, never to die again, who upon his own resurrection from the grave inherited a glorious resurrection body that can never be thwarted by illness or decay or death. And by conquering death temporarily in Lazarus, 
And then fully and finally in his own case, Jesus has guaranteed that all who believe in him might also be guaranteed our own passage from death unto eternal life so that we all might live even though we die. Lazarus' resurrection means that death is not the end. But resurrection comes only through belief in Jesus. Ultimately, it glorifies God and his son by pointing to Jesus' conquest of the grave in his own body. His victory over death in his own skin. Well, friends, what are we to make of this for ourselves living in... uh, 21st century on the northern beaches of Sydney. Clearly the most pressing thing is to believe in Jesus while you still live. I uh, finish funeral addresses pretty much in the same way. This is what I say. Just as this person has served us in their life, and I mean it too, just as this person has served us in their life, in many and varying ways, let them finally serve us in their passing by reminding us that we are all mortal and one day each of us will face that awful foe called death. And nothing is more pressing than putting your trust in the one who has overcome it. I'm not making this up. And you really should believe. Secondly, and I think this is probably more for the Christians here tonight, if it's true that death is not the end, why is it that we live like this life is all there is? We do do that here, don't we? Especially on the northern beaches. I mean, I think it's the perfect environment to live like this life is all there is. You know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die or eat, surf and be merry. I don't know what it is. Uh, Life's too short to drink bad wine. Dance like nobody is watching. Except that when I dance, you can't help but watch. It's like a car crash. You're thinking he's going to hurt himself, that boy. (laughs) Or someone else. Christian lives differently, don't we? With a firm hope in the resurrection unto an eternal, vast and glorious splendor. We don't need to kind of desperately grab at all the uh, possessions and achievements and experiences that are on offer in this world. I mean, you're allowed to enjoy them. But you're also meant to be okay if you never get to travel to France, you know? Or you never get to buy the sports car. Or go diving with whales. Or see the northern lights or whatever it is. It's okay. I mean, you're allowed to enjoy them, but it's okay to miss them. You know, um, just uh, on Friday night, after I'd finished preparing the talk, uh, I was listening to the radio, you know, 702, because highbrow and all that. And uh, there were two women having a conversation about uh, cosmetic procedures. And I'm really not talking just to the ladies here because one of the, the fastest growing trends in that whole industry is um, cosmetic uh, procedures and treatments for gentlemen, uh, what they call Brotox. And uh, I thought that was funny, actually, Brotox. I'd never heard that before. And they said what people are really trying to do these days is pursue agelessness. So interesting. Pursue agelessness. And uh, the lady was saying that the conversation has really shifted. I'm not sure if she was pro or against, by the way. She said you used to, and I'm not judging anyone, by the way, either, right? Uh, She said the conversation used to be you had to justify why you would do these procedures. But the conversation shifted in the last few years to why you wouldn't do these procedures in your pursuit of agelessness. 
I reckon Christians should pursue agelessness, but just in a different way, via the root of resurrection. And that means that we can rather live a life in pursuit of God's glory rather than merely our pleasure. You know, we can devote ourselves to loving him, to serving others, to pursuing godliness, to giving ourselves to Christian ministry and a million possibilities, even if that means missing out on the northern lights or the whales or the sports car or the Brotox. I mean, I reckon that's probably a sign, isn't it, that you believe in the resurrection when you forego a pleasure or an opportunity in favor of glorifying God and serving others. Uh, People are going to think you're odd if you do that. I mean, they probably think you're odd already though, right? If you make a decision that benefits others at the cost of your leisure or your achievements or just some experience that's out there. But friends, I want to say nothing is lost. Nothing is lost when you follow the one who is the resurrection and the life. And really the last uh, word tonight, and look, you must believe me when I say this is not a cheap attempt at shock value. I'm just saying it would be surprising if everyone who's sitting here today is in good enough health that we'll all be sitting here in 12 months' time. So the last thing I want to say is just a word to those who are not well or to those who are caring for those who are not well or indeed for any of us, all of us, whenever we get to that point in our lives when we are not well. It is simply a fact of this broken life that we will all die, that outraged Jesus. But he did something about it, first by raising Lazarus, and then himself being raised, resurrected from the dead. That means that in the face of death, we have hope. It means in the face of prolonged illness, we have hope. In preparing for today, I I read a quote from a German Christian called Hermann Friedrich Kohlbrugger. And really, you haven't lived until you've quoted Hermann Friedrich Kohlbrugger. He lived in Holland in the 1800s. It's not a picture of him. Well, he lived in the 1800s. Maybe it is a picture of him. (laughs) He said these words, When I die, although I never really die, and someone finds my skull, let this skull preach to him and say, I have no eyes. Nevertheless, I see him. I have no lips, but I kiss him. I have no tongue, yet I sing his praise along with all who call upon his name. I am a hard skull, but softened and melted in his love. I lay here exposed on God's acre, yet I am there in paradise All suffering is forgotten. His great love has done this for me. Friends, in the face of death, there is hope, the hope of the resurrection. As we finish up at the start, it's true, isn't it? No kid plans to deal in death when they grow up. And we think of death and Jesus is outraged by it, but it's not the end. Resurrection comes through belief in him. It will glorify him. It changes the way we die and it changes the way we live. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Let's pray to God together now. 
Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus, especially his resurrection, not just of Lazarus, but also himself. We ask that, that might change the way that we live so that we might live a life focused on you and not just given over to our pleasure. Pray that it might change even the way we face death, that we might have hope in the face of it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.